things I do up here, you've all heard me long enough, except for the visitors, and they may not come back anyway. So uh, one of the things we do up here is I always give you the background, the cultural background. And I got asked some questions on this retreat that made me pause a little bit. Why do we, why do we give you the cultural background? What's the reason? Okay. In the breakout sessions that I did, I asked that question in every one. And the standard answers, which are good, this is not a, a bad answer at all, was to help you understand the passage more, make sense of it. It does do that. But it dawned on me that that's not really the, the, the deepest reason why we explain the cultural background. And so I need to do a better job of helping you understand that. Cultural background, it does help you understand a text. But what it does, it gives you the opportunity to see God's redemptive grace, his patience, and his love in ways that you can't otherwise see. Okay? So by giving you the background, sometimes I make it real easy for you. So here's what I did in the breakout session. I said, we're going to change it up so that, and I'm not going to have you do this. I'm just going to illustrate it. We're gonna, I'm going to teach you how to reverse engineer a text. Because if you don't understand what was going on in culture, it doesn't make sense. Deuteronomy 25. If you bring a person who uh, has committed a crime, before the, you have to bring him before the judge. The judge will award the punishment based on the crime, but no more than 40 lashes or they'll be degraded in your eyes. What would happen today if we beat somebody 40 times? We go to jail. That doesn't make sense to us, does it? Okay? Remember, we are 3,500 years away from that text. And our sense of value and ethics that are in place, our whole legal system, has nothing in common with the legal system back here. And so to really understand this, how is God redemptive if he allows us to beat somebody 40 times? How does that happen? In order to make sense of that, you have to understand that whatever you read in the Old Testament, there was something worse happening in culture. Okay? If you don't understand that, then, then it just like it looks very archaic and looks like God, God is harsh. He looks like he's judgmental. Okay, that's what it looks like. We rarely see the redemption in that. So I asked one, one of the groups, I said, so what's 40 lashes? Wow, that's pretty wild. What's worse than 40 lashes? And one woman said 41. I go, well, that, that is worse. Yeah. What's worse than 41? And one woman said 60. Yeah, that's worse. So I said, keep going. What's worse than that? And uh, one woman said, well, you, you might shame them. Oh, okay. You're right. That's worse. Another woman said, you might maim them. That's true. You might. Another woman said, they might die. And I said, welcome to the surrounding nations of Israel. Okay? Just by using your imagination and reverse engineering the text, you have a glimpse how God is redemptive. Do you know what was really going on at the time? See, this is where I make it easy for you because I do the research. In Egypt, you're allowed to beat somebody 200 times. Five open wounds. There was no limit on how many times a husband could beat a wife. Okay? None. I saw some of those looks just then. (laughs) Between husband and wife. All of a sudden, 40 sounds redemptive, doesn't it? You see, whenever God steps in and does something in culture, he's beginning to mitigate evil practices in the world. 200 200 beatings is pretty, pretty brutal. Five open wounds. Okay? Well, what about bringing him before the judge? What's worse than that? And one of the, uh, uh, we had a, several, a few lawyers there. One's an attorney general. And she said, and she's a friend of mine. She said, vengeance. 
Welcome to the nations around Israel. All of a sudden, we're adjudicating everything to bring fairness to it. Make sense? So I did that one first. The first sermon I preached here in 2012, I've actually had some of the people that were here back then say, I need to repeat the sermon, uh, was on Deuteronomy 22. If a man rapes a virgin not engaged to be married, he must marry her. He must pay their father 50 shekels of silver. He cannot divorce her for the rest of his life because he's dishonored her. I know you guys were there. I remember you came up and talked to me. <laughs> and, um, and I looked up, I won't ever forget, at the amphitheater and saw hundreds of mouths hanging open. Okay, Apparently we don't talk about things like rape in church. And uh, it was easy for me because I wasn't, uh, I, you know, I had a job and everything. I thought I could just throw a grenade out here and walk away. It's fine. And the elders will take care of it. I didn't know they were going to hire me to clean it up. So <laughs> and how do you make sense of that? And the question I asked at that time was, does, this rec- rep- does it represent the redemptive God that we know? If it does, why don't we obey it today? And if it doesn't, what's it doing as a command in the law? Okay, really? Right? And so, um, uh, and the elders told me later on, a year later when I was being interviewed, that uh, it's the only time they can remember nobody got up and left, went to the bathroom or anything like that. No, nobody was texting. They were like, we've never heard this talked about before. How is that redemptive? So I asked this group of women, because I knew they would be experts at this, I said, what's worse than um, marrying the person who rapes you and requiring them to take care of you? What's worse than that? And one woman said, being repeatedly abused. Okay. What's worse than that? And somebody said, being passed around. Okay. What's worse than that? Being discarded with no value said, welcome to the nations around Israel. You just figured it out. See, so when you take any text and you go back into the culture, use your imagination to think of what could be worse, and you could see how God is beginning to show grace by stepping in and stopping a mess. So in every other country, you women... You were property. You could do what you want with our property. Okay? No value, no dignity. And all of a sudden in Israel, God says you can't do that. Now we're going to start showing honor and dignity. You see, from the very beginning, it was God's plans, that plan that every one of us approach him equally. I was at this conference, and we had 1,200 women. I don't know. At one point, I sat there and looked out the, at all these hands raised, singing, They're there to learn how to teach. They're there to learn how to study the Bible a little better. They're there to do all that. And uh, and I just wept. You know, when I was a five-year-old boy, I could not. My mom, I'm positive, I'm sure my grandmothers never could have conceived of that in the church at that time. And here are all these women leaders. Some are pastors, some are elders. Some are just, you know, wanting to learn how to study better and could see it. You know, in the tabernacle, there was no court of the women. There was no court of the Gentiles. Everyone was welcome. In Solomon's temple, no court of the women, no court of the Gentiles, everyone. That came later. That came later on. And you get this early glimpse of what God envisioned that we find under the new covenant. In, Paul, in God, in Christ, there's neither male nor female. We stand equally before the Lord, equally gifted in every way. And we had a whole bunch of women at this conference that were learning to do that. It was a really beautiful thing. Learning what that means. 
and uh, get, being given opportunities to reach out and use the gifts that God has given them and wanting to do it respectfully and wise. So this is why we look at backgrounds. It does help us understand a passage, but more importantly than that, it helps you understand God and how God is redemptive because God is in the business of cleaning up messes that we create. That's what redemption is all about. He's cleaning up a mess. So we've been looking at the minor prophets, haven't we? And uh, the reason why I'm looking at the minor prophets in a row is because when you put them all together, all 12 of them, you find, first of all, when you trace the history of them, you see how God is redemptive and gracious and patient, very patient. I mean, the, the prophets themselves cover 300 years, and they're not, they didn't even start till 150 years after Solomon died. Solomon was a bad king when he died. A civil war, boom, the northern kingdom, they ran off amok. They went away from God and developed their own system. The southern kingdom soon followed them. We've been tracing that through, haven't we? So the very northern kingdom, God sent Amos and Hosea, two prophets. Then he said, you're toast. You're done. You went past the line. You're evil. And guess what all the prophets had in common? They have a few things in common. One is you're, you're, you're taking advantage of the poor, the marginalized, the franchise. You're hurting them. You're not ta- you're not pre- and the whole purpose of Leviticus, you may remember this from two years ago. The purpose of the law, it says in Leviticus, is that there will be no poor among you. Okay, it was simple the way God constructed society. And they were doing what nations do. The rich were taking advantage of the poor. They were skipping over the widows, the orphans. They were abusing. They were doing all that stuff. By the time Solomon died, the people were exhausted and burdened. They were overtaxed. They hated life. They hated the king. And they just immediately went into civil war. So the northern kingdom, he sends Hosea and Amos. Here's the southern kingdom. Assyria is over here. Okay, And so Assyria is starting to grow. And so as long as they are moving away from the Lord, God's going to let them go. We asked two weeks ago, is God the author of evil or does he restrain evil? He's protecting them from the Assyrians, but the more idolatrous they become, the more he lifts his hand of protection, just like a parent does with a child, okay? But he doesn't just let them go. He sends two prophets to them, Jonah, who goes to Nahum, capital city of Assyria, and warns them to repent, which they did. It wasn't legitimate because they only wanted repentance so this new God wouldn't punish them. But then afterwards, after they come over here and annex and annihilate this nation and all the other nations outside of Israel, then he sends Nahum to say, now you've crossed the line. It's toast. You're done. Okay? Babylonians are coming. So now this nation is gone. They were very, very cruel people. Those that managed to, uh, that they took captive... Their, their foreign policy was to scatter them around all the other nations so they'd lose their identity, and they cease to exist as a nation. They're gone. So the southern kingdom is a few steps behind the northern kingdom. Well, God doesn't want them to go their own way either, so he sends Micah to them. We talked about Micah. So Micah's message was kind of simple. You have the northern kingdom. They've just been annexed and annihilated by the Assyrians, and so the refugees, those that managed to escape, are coming south, and the southern kingdom is saying, yeah, no, we don't want you in our kingdom. Get out. We don't want you here. And Micah took him to task for that, okay? Which is, which is not trying to be political, trying to be theological, so hear me in the right framework, that God blesses people. He said, I decide who to make rich, and I decide to make who to make poor. I decide who to make blind. That's my choice as God. I decide which nation to rise up, which one to destroy, why does he bless you as individuals? So you can be a blessing to the people around you. You see, your wealth is not yours. You own nothing. You are stewards. 
The Bible is very clear from beginning to end. You're stewards. Okay? God doesn't want you to go, this is mine. No, God wants you to say, wow, look at how he blessed me. I'm going to bless everybody else. And you know what he does? He replenishes it so you can keep blessing people. That's 2 Corinthians 9. Why does he bless the nations? So that the other nations would come. When Solomon was in his good days, 1 Kings 8, he's dedicating the temple right in the middle of his chapter and a half prayer of dedication. He says, and Lord, when the foreigner comes, um, when they hear of your great name, because they will indeed hear of your great name, listen to their prayer and bless them so that they will know that you are the one true God. So God blesses a nation specifically to attract the attention of the rest of the world. Okay, now... How the government decides what people let in, how they're going to let in, that's way by my pay grade. I'm not going to worry about it. Okay? Uh, I just don't ever want to be a nation that says nobody's welcome. We're dead when that happens. That's the story of the Bible. Every nation in the Bible, that's the story. When we say, you're no longer welcome here, we like what we have, you're not welcome to it, we're dead. Okay? So I'm not trying to be political because I honestly don't know what everybody's doing above me in the government. Okay? All I know is what I read on social media and I hear in the news and I don't trust any, either of them at all. So I honestly don't know. I heard one of the podcasters the other day play, play a, uh, a statement made by President Biden. We got done. He said, uh, just folks, this is not President Biden. This is our official intelligence. Be wise. Let this be your governing compass. It's right here. What we know for sure is we start taking care, we start uh, abusing the poor, the marginalized, and keeping people out, our days are short as a nation. So Hezekiah comes along. Two prophets went to the northern kingdom. They're gone. Two prophets went to the Assyrians. And at this time in history, they're beginning to fade away. They've gotten weak. They've gotten, uh, they've gotten con- um, content with their wealth. They've conquered the world. Ashurbanipal had the largest library. And he's sitting back reading books, reading poetry. And they get weaker and weaker and weaker. And the Babylonians are growing. Southern kingdom, he sent Micah. Then he sends Habakkuk. And we saw that a couple weeks ago. Okay. And then he sends Zephaniah. Zephaniah is the last prophet. This is the last one. They've crossed the line. And it's now over. Okay. They're just about to get annihilated by the Babylonians. And so we get the last word of this one prophet of what God's going to say. From here on out, the rest of the prophets are now that they've been kicked out of the land, temple destroyed, Jerusalem's no longer in existence. Now God sends prophets to them while they're in slavery. Boy, didn't we start out in slavery? <laughs> okay. And then he sends prophets to them after they come back into the land. And we'll look at those. So you can see how God is gracious, how he's loving, how he's patient how he's redemptive, but he does have a line in the sand. Okay? So Zephaniah, he prophesied about the same time as uh, just a little bit after uh, Habakkuk. 
who was 100 years after Micah. Jeremiah is prophesying at the same time. Ezekiel's prophesying. These prophets, God is sending a lot of people. Okay, when you read them one at a time, it looks like you got this prophet one-off going out here. But you got stuff all over the known world. You got Nahum at this time going to Assyria. You got Ezekiel. You got Jeremiah. You got Habakkuk. You got Zephaniah. You got them all going on in the world at this time, trying to get everybody to stop the mess. I mean, God's up there going, children. Okay? It's a, it's a lot of stuff and then we're going to read about a, a female prophet. She didn't write, but she's in there uh, speaking as well. So God's got voices all over the place. Sometimes we think that we need a prophet in our country, right? You ever feel that way? You know something? We have something far better. You know what we have? We have an army. It's right here. What did God say in Exodus 19? What was the covenant? If you obey me, I'll make you a kingdom of priests as to the rest of the nation and to your own people. I'll make you a holy nation. What did Peter say in 1 Peter 2? We are a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. What happened between those two? If you don't know the answer, I always say Jesus. <laughs> the cross. Okay? It's the same covenant it's exactly the same. The difference is we now have the Holy Spirit to enable us to carry it out. We are a kingdom of priests. We are an army right here. You know what I see when I look out at this army? I see, and I know a whole bunch of you, I see, I see you're getting into every little a nook and cranny in this county. That's what I see. And you're trying to learn how to love people. You're trying to learn how to serve them, how to meet their needs. Okay? We are the conscience of the nation. It's right here. It's sitting in this church. This is what God envisioned all along. This is called the remnant. Those who fight for and care for those who don't know, who live in a dark world. So when I look, I see an army here. I don't have the important job. You do. My job is to help you believe that you can do it and get out there and talk. So we're going to read Zephaniah. We're going to read parts of Zephaniah, not the whole thing. Um, but first, uh, read, put the first verse of Zephaniah up there. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of so-and-so, during the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. Okay, under Micah, we had Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a good king. The Assyrians surrounded Jerusalem, and they said, they taunted him, said, has any nation is God's ever stood up to our gods? No, of course not. We've annihilated every nation under the sun, and your God's no different. Don't even bother to consult your God. And the people inside the city, are, they're greedy, they're wealthy. They're not following the Lord. They're idolatrous, and they're grumbling. He's all alone. So he takes a letter, and he lays it down in the temple, and he, he weeps. And he says, God, I don't know what to do. And God says, because you humbled yourself, I'm going to extend your kingdom for a while, and then uh, I'm going to wait till after you die before I punish well, then after him is Manasseh, who we saw two weeks ago, immediately rejected everything, tore down everything, and filled the temple of God with idols and was a very evil king. So he finally dies. Um, that's during Habakkuk. And then Ammon comes on. He's only there for two years. That's how evil he is. And then Josiah becomes a king. Josiah is only eight years old when he becomes a king. How can your grandfather and your father be some of the most evil people in the history of the world? And he loves the Lord. Boy, some thoughts about parenting wrapped up in her somewhere. 
Listen, I'm not going to put it up there. I just want you to hear this story. Josiah, this is out of 2 Kings 22. He was eight years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. Uh, He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed completely the ways of his father, his ancestor David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. He's eight years old. And then in the 18th year of his reign, I think he wakes up spiritually. In the 18th year. So how old is he now? Come on, help me with my math. Okay, 56? 26? (laughs) Something like that. Who knows? So, but he's a young guy. And he wakes up and he has this idea. So he sends his secretary to the um, high priest, Hokiah, and says, hey, you know, we've not used this temple. Why don't we clean out the temple? And figure out how to use it. He doesn't know how to use it. They don't have the Torah. It's long gone. This is all the Holy Spirit moving him. So they clean out the temple. It is remarkable. And so Hekiah the high priest said to the secretary, I have found the book of the law buried in the temple. Isn't that remarkable? We studied Leviticus. Deuteronomy and Leviticus are very much the same. And they, they didn't even have it. And they found it. So the, the secretary goes to the king. And he says, uh, we found this book about the God that belongs to this temple. Okay? The nation's still corrupt. Everybody's worshiping Molech and all these other gods. But we found, we found the book that it talks about this God. And Josiah says, Really? I don't know anything about that God. Let's read it. So the secretary read from it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, if you've never read the end of Deuteronomy, go read the curses and blessings. Because when you get to those blessings, you think, would God really ever do that? Yeah, he's about to do this. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robe. Wow. He said, go and inquire of this God for the people and for Judah and find out what's going to happen. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because those who have gone before us, i.e. my father and grandfather, have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. So where did the high priest go? He went to a woman prophetess named Huldah. She didn't write anything. He went to a woman prophetess. This, here's our answer. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Tell the man who sent you to me, Josiah, I'm going to bring disaster on this place and its people according to everything written in the book of the king of Judah, that the king of Judah has read. Those are the curses in Deuteronomy. It's about to happen. It's too late. You're done. He didn't say if you repent, I'll hold off. He said, no, it's now done. It's now certainty. Okay, you've gone too far. We're now 450 years after Solomon. That's plenty of patience. So because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods, aroused my anger, etc., etc., I'm basically going to destroy them. But because your heart was responsive, because you, King Josiah, because your heart was responsive before the Lord, When you heard what I have spoken against this place and its people, 
that I would lay them to waste and they would become a curse. And because you tore your robes and you wept in my presence, I heard you. Therefore, I will gather you to your ancestors and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I'm going to bring on this palace. So instead of happening a couple years later, it happens 35 years later. So he lets, Jeremiah, he lets Josiah finish his, his reign in peace. That's what a righteous person does. The prayer of a righteous person, James 5, accomplishes a great deal. Okay? So, Zephaniah comes right into the middle of this. And here's Zephaniah's message. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 2. I'm going to sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Sounds like Noah, doesn't it? He just doesn't use a flood to do it. I will sweep away both man and beast. I'll sweep away the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. When I destroy all of humanity on the face of the earth, declares the Lord, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against everyone who lives right here in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place, all these idol worship, the very name of the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs, who worship the starry host, those who bow down and swear by the Lord, but also swear by Molech, hedging their bets. Okay? Wow, this is devastating news. They find out now what their certainty is. Okay? Ezekiel, at this time, Shortly after this, Ezekiel was a priest. He's, already, he's about to be deported. They had several de- deportations under the Babylonians. And, he's, and when you read, if, if you want to see what's going to happen between now and then, read Ezekiel 8, 9, and 10 and Lamentations. And you get a glimpse. We're not going to look at those, but you get a glimpse of what happened in the middle. Ezekiel's on the bank of the Kibar River in Babylon. He's a priest. He's weeping. and say, Lord, I, I don't understand. What happened? And the Lord said, I'll show you. And he, he puts him in a trance, in a vision, takes him to the temple and says, tell me what you see, O priest, you're the priest. Look at the north. I see all these people with their backs to the temple, bowing down to blasphemous idols. East, west, south, all these people bowing down to idolatrous idols. And I'm going to take you into the preparation rooms inside the temple where they got the animals ready and all that. Now what do you see? I see people doing things with animals they shouldn't do. I see them abusing women. They shouldn't be doing that. He said, that's the reality of the world. That's what's really going on. What you see is an illusion. It's no different than John in Revelation chapter 4. Come sit here next to me and look at the world through my eyes. And Ezekiel gets to see for the first time how evil the world really was. And so in chapter 10, the seraphim flies up, lifts its wings, goes over to the east gate, turns around. It's one of the saddest things in the history of the world. Looks back at the temple Solomon had built and flies away, never to return until Jesus walked into the temple. So he's going to destroy all creation. I'm not going to read you the, I'm not going to put these other verses up there. I'm just going to summarize some things. 
But not only that, he's going to destroy all the known nations. Philistia, that's to the west of Israel, over by the, uh, the uh, Mediterranean Sea. Gaza will be abandoned. Ashkelon will be left in ruins. Ashdod will be empty. The Ekron will be uprooted. The land by the sea over here. See, this is the land of the Philistines. They never dealt with the Philistines. And God said, if you don't take the Philistines out, they're going, they going to corrupt you. They never did that. And they've grown prosperous, and they've led them astray. So this land over here said it's going to become a land for shepherds. We're going to tear down all those great cities and buildings. Moab and Ammon, that's on the east. That's on the Transjordan, on the other side of the Jordan. Moab and Ammon. I've heard the insults of the Ammonites, the taunts of Moab. Uh, Therefore, as long as I live, declares the Lord, Moab will become like Sodom. Ammonites will become like Gomorrah. He's going to destroy them just like he did Sodom and Gomorrah. A A place of weeds and salt pits and wasteland forever. Then he goes to the south, Cush, down by Egypt. You too will be slain. And then he goes to the north, Assyria. Now, Assyria technically is to the east, but they, when they fought, they had to go up around and come down. So that's their portrait is coming from the north. Here, here's Assyria. They're getting fat, dumb, and happy now. Complacent. So Assyria, he will stretch out his hand against Assyria and destroy it, leaving Nineveh utterly desolate and dry as the desert. This is the superpower, the only superpower in the world. This is the greatest uh, nation on the earth when it comes to power and wealth because they've stolen everybody else's. It's a good thing to remember. It's not assured, our nation. Okay? Flocks and herds will lie down there in Nineveh and creatures of every kind. I love this. The desert owl will roost in her columns. So the columns that held the great temples, they're just standing with owls nesting. Their hooting will echo through the empty windows at nighttime. The rubble is going to fill the doorways. All the beams of cedar that they're so proud of will be exposed to the weather. What a ruin she has become. A lair for wild beasts. Everyone who walks by is going to laugh at her and scoff. The superpower of the world. That's what God says is going to happen. He doesn't stop there because then he turns his eyes to Jerusalem in chapter 3. Woe to the city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled. She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God except for Josiah. Um, I added that. <laughs> her officials within her are roaring lions. They devour the poor. Okay? Her rulers are evening wolves. They leave nothing for mourning. Her prophets are unprincipled. They are treacherous people, except for Huldah, the one woman godly priest. Her priests profane the sanctuary. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no wrong. Morning by morning, by morning he dispenses his justice. And every new day... He does not fail. Yet the unrighteous, they know no shame. None. It goes on in verse 7. Jerusalem, I thought surely, surely you would fear me. The jewel of creation. The one who is the recipient of the law of goodness. The law where there'd be no poor. The law where you'd love one another and treat each other kindly, generously. Surely... I thought you will fear me and accept correction. Then your place of refuge will not be destroyed, nor all my punishments come upon her. But they were still eager to act corruptly in all that they did. Wow. 
That's pretty wild. A sad day. But as I've said through all the minor prophets, there's always a remnant of the faithful. Oh, they get stuck in the mess, but there's a remnant. And God always has words of grace for them. And here it is. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9. I will purify the lips of the peoples that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Cush to the south, my worshipers, my scattered people will bring me offerings. On that day, Jerusalem, you will not be put to shame for all the wrongs that you have done because I will remove from you your arrogant boasters. Okay, the cycle gets repeated in history. One day, all of the evil and greed is done for good. It's out. God will abolish. He goes on. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill, but I will leave you without number. I mean, I will leave within you the meek and the humble, the remnant of Israel who trusts in the name of the Lord. You see, for the faithful, we may have to endure stuff that's not pleasant, but as he has said numerous times, our future is secure. Because of who God is. These are the last words before Jerusalem ceases to exist. And Josiah had to watch it happen. He had to watch it happen. Pretty soon, verse 14, Sing, daughter Zion, shout aloud, Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. Verse 17, the Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. That's the God that we serve. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. He's going to rejoice over us. The last verse of the book, I'll gather you, I'll bring you home. I'll give you honor and praise. These are the remnant. You see, the cycle has been repeated. It's going to get repeated again pretty quick with the Babylonians and then the Persians and then the Romans. Okay? And it's going to get repeated in our world as well at some point. So we all wish that we had a prophet to stand up and do what these prophets did. But God has something better in store, something far more powerful. They're not going to listen to a prophet, but they'll listen to an army. Right here. That's the new covenant. That's you. They will listen to an army. When you're out there in this wonderful county, loving people, having conversations with them, meeting them, taking care of them when they need something, could be as simple as any lawn mode. Maybe somebody's hurting, had surgery. You know? When you're out there doing that, how did the Roman Empire fall? Did uh, Jesus go after the Caesar? How about the Senate? How about the wealthy and the elite who were hurting everybody, the poor? No. You had 11, and then they added Paul. And they went after the poor people. Macedonia, Greece, Italy, Asia Minor, Crete. They went after the poor people. And the poor people began to tell their friends, I have found the Messiah. And over 400 years, that spread. 
it spread. And you know what happened? Eventually the Roman Empire just collapsed because he went for the foundation. That's what we're doing here in our county, isn't it? Some of you are in positions of power. You get out there, run. Join the town council, thank you. You know, run for mayor. If you know how to do it, run for the chief of police. I wouldn't have a clue, okay? Run for school board. I know some of you tried and failed. Do it again. Don't give up. Do it again. Get in there and do those things. Talk to your bosses at work, your friends. Show them what, show them what righteousness looks like. They don't know. Let them see it. We can turn this county around. If I didn't believe that, I wouldn't be here. Just being honest with you. If I thought that you didn't care or if I thought it was hopeless, I'd be someplace else. I had the opportunity to go to other churches, not here. And when they asked me what my vision was, I threw out hand grenades. I'm going to go down to bars and hang out with people. Oh, you can't do that. We're Christians. You're not allowed to go to the bar. You're our pastor. Okay, have a good life. I'm sure you'll find a a pastor that'll make you happy. I'm just not it. One church, I got so offended. I said, I don't think I have ever been so offended as I am sitting here with all of you. You're just like the Pharisees, whitewashed walls and dead on the inside. Nancy goes, I've never seen you do that. I made the decision right there. I'm not going to this church. I might as well punch him in the face while I do it. <laughs> the next day, the assistant pastor called me and said, can we go to lunch? And uh, he said, I'm so embarrassed and ashamed. And I said, I read all your documents, and, and it was a perfect church. And he goes, that's because I wrote them, and that's what I wanted. I did not know what my church was like until last night. And I said, really? And he said, yeah, that's when it all came out in the open. And I said, whoa. He said, uh, so I walked in and quit today. This morning was my last morning. I didn't give him a two-week notice. We're done. I'm not going to belong to that church. Okay, if I didn't think that we could not make an impact, I wouldn't be here. There's plenty of places to go in the kingdom. This is a kingdom of priests right here because I know you. So I'll leave you with one question. When you look at what's happening in the world, nothing new under the sun, okay? Do you... Respond with anxiety, fear, doubt, discouragement, lack of hope? Are you placing your hope in one person that might rise up? Do you hedge your bets like they did? You pray to the Lord, but you also hope for some. Or do you just get out there and do what Josiah did? Simple trust, faith, boldness, repentance. That's why I've said, you know, make it a daily habit to do this. God, I'm sorry. Jesus, forgive me, and please forgive my nation. That's why Paul and Peter said, pray for the leaders, because they're the ones that are held accountable by God. They will face judgment. That is a guarantee. Pray for them. Be merciful that God would reveal himself to them and give them wisdom, because we want a good country, and we want a good county, don't we? We do. Here is the army to make it happen. Father, thank you for uh, being who you are. Thank you for being a God of incredible power and incredible patience. Lord, uh, we look at these backgrounds to these nations and we can see how grateful you are, how gracious you are and generous. Thank you. 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen.